Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. Now, you all know if you've been here for any length of time, guests won't know this, but many of you who've been here before know this. I'm just, I love history. I'm a history buff, and, and I especially love little remote corners of history where there are stories that illustrate so beautifully what God is about um, and, and has been lived out in history. And, and one of the little corners of history um, that we hear very little about, well, until recently when the show Vikings came on, is what happened uh, with the conquest of England by the Vikings. See, what happened in, around 1000 AD, this guy came uh, from France named William the Conqueror and swept through and kind of erased a lot of the previous history um, by conquering England and leading to uh, a new dynasty. But perhaps you have heard of the Viking king, uh, Canute. And Canute was an amazing man. In fact, it's been said uh, about Canute, and I, and I want to quote this exactly, that he was the most effective king in all of Anglo-Saxon history. And, and you may never have even heard his name. Well, the reason, one of the reasons that he was so effective was despite the fact that he was very powerful, he was also very humble. And there's a, a, an old, old story about Canute that goes like this, that his court was, was just filled with people that loved to flatter him. And they would tell him, King, you are the greatest king that has, has ever reigned. Uh, you are going to keep extending your rule over maybe all of Europe, certainly all of England. Uh, and, and at that time, he was already ruling in, in Denmark and Norway and the north part of England. And so they were constantly telling him what a great man he was. And so one day, he kind of got sick and tired of this. And so he, he called his court in front of him, uh, and, and they happened to be along the seashore as he did this. So you, uh, picture this. Uh, he and his court are along the seashore, uh, they actually uh, happen to have, the, I'm sure they're carrying him on this litter with his throne on it. And he says, all right, put me down. Everybody stop. We're going to have a little chat. So you think I am the greatest, most powerful king that has ever lived, right? So whatever I say, that's going to happen. And everybody, of course, because they just wanted to flatter the king, nodded their heads and said, no one can resist your power, Canute. Whatever you say is going to happen. So Canute takes it one step further. He looks out at the ocean and the waves and he says, so, so if I tell the ocean to stop, the ocean will stop. It won't come any further in. Now, it so happened, and Canute knew this, that the tide was coming in. So Canute said, take my throne, take this litter with my throne on it, and I want you to place it at the water's edge. And he sat it down there, Canute sat on his throne, and he began to give orders to the ocean, to the waves. And, and he said, hear me, 
ocean waves and obey me. I tell you, do not come any further. Do not dare touch my feet. And it wasn't but a few seconds that the first wave came up and lapped gently over his feet. And he looked around he, as if to say, did you see that? And he asked the crowd again, now, are you sure that if I tell these waves to stop, they are going to obey me? They all nodded their heads and assured him that the ocean, even the ocean itself, would obey his word. So he kept ordering it, kept telling the ocean, don't dare touch me. As the tide came in and first of all rolled over his feet, then his ankles, then his lower legs, and he kept sitting there. Until finally, the ocean was covering him up waist deep. Now, the cool part of the story is that Canute was a Christian. And that might be a little surprising because a lot of what we have learned about the Vikings earlier on in their history was that they were not Christians, they were pagans. But at this point, Canute had been raised a Christian, and he looked up at the crowd and he said, please don't ever mistake me ever again for the one true king. The king who alone holds the oceans in his hand. The one king who can give orders to the sea, and the sea will obey him, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and gave an, an amazing testimony. You, you see, what I love about Canute was that as powerful as he was and as, as growing as his kingdom was, he kept his humility. And, and, and this is why it's so important for us to do this. We have to remember God is God and I am not. And that is what Canute remembered. And there are two big reasons why all of us still today have to remember God is God and I am not. One, because our culture and our society is constantly building us up, flattering us as human beings, and telling us that we can do all sorts of things in our own power, in our own authority, in our own ability, to the point where we make little gods out of ourselves. And we, get, we let the flattery of our culture and the world around us tell us that we are or we should be much more than we are. In that sense, learning to say God is God and I am not is a lead-in to being humble the way Canute used it. But there's another very important reason why it's important for you to, to be able to say, God is God and I am not. And that is because as human beings, our hearts swing like pendulums. And literally within moments, we can go to, I am capable of anything. Many of us were even taught by our parents, you can do anything you want if you will just apply yourself. And we can go from right there in that position to swinging over to complete discouragement and despair. And so in those moments when you're feeling disappointed with your life, 
when things are not where you want them to be and where you're maybe even kicking yourself and ashamed and I should be able to do more because as a human, I, my, my parents always taught me I can do anything I want, but I'm failing. My life isn't turning out the way I wanted it to. I don't know how I'm going to get through these struggles with my health, with my family, with my work. I don't know if I have the power to do it. The one thing that can bring peace and comfort in those moments is to come back to, yes, sometimes I fall short. In fact, many times I fall short. Because I am weak and I am sinful, but the good news is God is God. And I am not. And he has the power to help me. That's the lesson that I want to send you home with today. Now, let's talk about why I'm going to send you home with that, because some of you are going, what? Is this over already, Pastor Jeff? (laughs) Really? No, it's not over yet. Stay seated. Grab your crosswalk notes. And see why we say God is God and I am not, and that our God, our Savior in particular, our Savior Jesus Christ has power like none other. So Jesus has just sort of begun his ministry. And as we enter into Luke chapter 4, before the verses we're about to read, Jesus has visited his hometown and Initially, people are very surprised. Isn't, isn't this the son of the carpenter? Uh, and, and they're shocked at what he uh, claims to be and what he's doing. And then eventually they get angry with him and they drive him out of town. Jesus actually has to supernaturally disappear from in front of them to avoid being thrown off the edge of a cliff. So Jesus is no longer welcome in the town that he grew up. And so he goes to a place much better suited to being the headquarters for his ministry, a a, a little city called Capernaum that was situated along the, the shore of the Sea of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee, as it's sometimes called. So let's, let's take a look at what Jesus does as he goes there to set Capernaum up as his headquarters. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, And on the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are with authority and power. He gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. So I want to highlight a couple of things that you just heard. First of all, notice that Jesus goes into Capernaum, and what is the first thing he does to establish himself? He begins to teach. And this is going to turn out to be a very busy day. 
Historians have kind of put together from the, the various four gospels what this day looked like. But this day is probably the day where Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount before he came into the synagogue. It's probably the day when he carried out several other healings as well on his way back from the Sermon on the Mount uh, into town where he would meet with the people in the synagogue and teach some more. And after that, as we're going to hear, there are more healings and, and driving out of demons. Now, this might straight strike some of you as, as a little bit strange that we're talking about demons. But in the Bible and in reality, because the Bible tells us what reality is, demonic forces are true and real. They exist. Now, we don't always seem to see a, as much outward evidences of that today because Satan is wily. He attacks us sometimes in different ways. But in the time of Jesus, it was quite common that demonic forces took possession of someone. And this is what's happening. While Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, uh, a demon-possessed man walks into the synagogue. You, you can picture how it is even in today's world where uh, a bunch of Christians are worshiping together in a church and uh, a crazed looking man walks into the midst of the church and everybody's a little surprised and shocked, but Jesus uh, knows what's going on. I want you to underline or circle the word authority. Jesus' teaching, the first conclusion that the people come to is, this man is amazing. His words have authority. Jesus doesn't have to quote other people as an authority. Jesus, when he teaches, it's compelling. It's deep. It's revealing of who God is and what his heart is for people. His words have authority. And in, in this passage, actually, there are two words that are used that are very similar. And, and the word that is used here for authority means it comes from a powerful position. So when they heard Jesus speaking, their thought was, this person has the right and the resources to say what he's saying. That's the key thought. He has the right and the resources because these words are coming from a man who has position in the kingdom of God. This is what made it somewhat confusing because even though they could tell that his words had position, it, they apparently knew that he was not trained in the traditional way by having followed a rabbi around. He was a carpenter. So those two thoughts seemed to clash in their mind. And that's why it says they were amazed by Jesus. How can his words possess such authority, such right and such rich resources behind his teaching? The man walks in with the, the demon-possessed man walks in and Jesus shows that his words even have authority over the demon. Go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? The demon asks. Have you come to destroy us? You see, the demon knows, doesn't he? He knows what Jesus' mission is. And that it doesn't end well for the forces of Satan. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
And I love how Luke does this here. He, he puts these two thoughts. Notice what the spirit, this evil spirit is called, an impure spirit. So on the one hand, you have all the forces of Satan with their impurity and their sin. And on the other hand, you have the purest of the pure, the holy one of God. And they are in this match. And what happens? Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out, notice, without injuring him. Why does Luke make note of that? If we read other demon possession stories, maybe you'll do this uh, when, you, when you're reading your, your daily devotions. I want you to notice that often when there's demon possession, the demons throw people around and hurt them. In Luke chapter 8, in just a few chapters after this, Jesus heals a de demon-possessed man of a demon named Legion, and this whole crowd of legions goes into this herd of pigs, and what, what happens to the herd of pigs? The demons drown them. So it's very common that when, even when someone could cast a demon out, that that demon would make sure to hurt somebody before leaving, to trash their own. When Jesus throws this demon out, that does not happen. And all the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are with authority. And here's the second word, and power. So underline authority and underline power. How are those different? Authority represents a kind of power that comes from position with its rights and its resources. But the second word is actually the word that we get the word dynamite from. It's dynamis in the original language. And that means you have the capability and the capacity. You are able of doing what you say you can do. So Jesus has both. He's got the position. He's got the right. He's got the resources to say, go away. And the demon goes away. And he's not even able to hurt the man. The crowd knows, though, that he also has the power, like dynamite, to do the job and get it done in a way that's truly amazing. And Jesus has both. And it's really clear that all of this is associated with Jesus' words. And so it says, he gives orders to impure spirit and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Write this down. Jesus' words have power like none other. Would you like to know when you say to yourself, God is God and I am not, that your Savior Jesus has the right and the resources to help you? He has the authority to answer your prayers and according to his will, do the things that you're asking him to do. And like dynamite, he also has the capacity and the ability to do things in your life. Like dynamite blows things up, he has that amazing kind of power to get the job done. Rights and position give him that, but also the capacity and the energy to do that. Please, when you go through things in your life, 
when you're struggling, when you're hurting, when you're wondering about the outcome of events at work, with your health, in your family, in our neighborhood, in our nation. When you pray, consider starting with, God, you are God and I am not. And what that means to me and what comforts me and gives me great peace is that you have both the position the right and the resources on the one hand, and you have the power, the dynamite-like ability and capacity to solve these issues where I, as a mere human, do not. It's just so amazing and comforting to have that peace. Let's go on. Jesus' words have power like none other. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it, and it left her. She got up at, at once uh, and began to wait on them. At sunset, The people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, you are the son of God. There it is. There's the theme right there of our entire series. Even the demons can recognize who Jesus is. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. In other words, Jesus did not need the recommendation or the endorsement of demonic forces for any number of reasons. Probably first and foremost because he knew that their motives in revealing who he truly was were probably to prevent him from getting the work done by drawing large crowds to distract him from his true mission of humbly, as a servant, saving the world. This was another form of temptation. Very easily could have been when Satan said, hey, look at me, worship me, and I'll give you this kingdom that you're seeking right now. And Jesus turned that back. But there are probably multiple reasons why. Uh, Later on, we we hear that the uh, Pharisees and the teachers of the law accused Jesus of using his power, that his power really comes from the devil. And Jesus knew if he kept getting endorsements and recommendations from demons, it might well look like his power was allied to Satan rather than to his heavenly father. So he rebukes them and tells them to be quiet. He would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. We underline that phrase? Because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So the first thing that we see as Jesus moves, now he's in Capernaum, he moves from the the synagogue and is going to stay with Peter. And he goes to Peter's house and as we just read, he he finds that 
Simon's mother-in-law, the the mom of, of his wife, was suffering from a high fever. And it's interesting, the word choice here. Did you notice that? So he bent over her and rebuked the fever. Now, some people believe that that word rebuked is typically only used when something is caused by a personal being. Meaning that by rebuking the fever, this may well, this fever may well have also been a manifestation of a demonic spirit that was trying to inhabit Peter's mother-in-law. Now, we, we don't know that, but it's kind of interesting to think about it that way, that, that demonic forces, the power of Satan, it will use whatever it can use to discourage and demoralize us, including, if need be, attacking our health. We know that from other stories in the Bible. So whether it was just simply that this was a physically caused fever or or something that had to do with demonic forces at work in this home, Jesus rebukes it. And I want you to notice what happens. It left her. She got up. You see these next two words? At once and began to wait on them. How long did the results take? And not only were they immediate results, she felt so well, so immediately, that she gets up and begins to do stuff, to serve them and help them. So so Jesus' actions here, along with his words, have this immediate and, and, and very complete power to bring healing to Peter's mother-in-law. And then we see how complete it is when it says, in the evening. Now, this was the Sabbath day, which is why Jesus had been in the synagogue earlier. It's clear why all these people would wait until evening after the Sabbath was done, because they, they, I'm sure, had to carry some of these people, and that was not allowed on the Sabbath day. But look at this. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. There was nothing that could resist his words and actions. That's so comforting. And I I hope that you catch this. That sometimes we we get the thought in our, our mind that, well, maybe this is a problem that Jesus doesn't want to deal with. That when we wait and we watch for Jesus to act in our lives, uh, we start, we, we sort of start to limit what he can do. And we begin to think small. And, and what this story tells us is Jesus is so powerful that if he wants something to change like that, it changes like that. If Jesus wants to tackle any issue. It didn't matter how many different kinds of illnesses and diseases and and people who were injured and crippled. He, He took care of it all on this day. And not one problem escaped his notice or escaped his power. And I want you to believe that that is really true in your life too. That as you walk with Jesus through faith, 
Inspired by the Holy Spirit, you can have this comfort of knowing Jesus can deal with anything that's thrown at him. The other thing I want us to remember in this is that it's not just the issue of when we're hurting. It's also the issue of when when our heads get too big. When we begin to listen to the flattery of the world and tell ourselves we can deal with anything that's thrown at us apart from God. Now, can we deal with anything that's thrown at us with Jesus at our side? Absolutely. But unfortunately, sometimes in our heart, we leave Jesus behind, filled with the flattery of the world, told by the world and our culture how powerful we are, how much ability and intelligence we have, and we begin to think we can do it without God's help. These people who came to Jesus that night were smart enough to know we've reached the end of our rope. We've gone as far as we can go as mere human beings. This guy seems to be able to do something about our problems, so let's humbly recognize our own limitations and bring our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors to Jesus because he can deal with it. Notice what happens the next day. What does Jesus do in his exhaustion? Now remember, it's been, can you think back through that Sabbath day we just talked about, right? Already mentioned the things he had done. Sermon on the Mount, teaching the people on the hillside, several miracles on the way into the synagogue, in the synagogue, casting out the demon from the demon-possessed man, switches to Peter's house, does some more miracles, and then spends the whole evening doing more and more and more miracles. What does it say Jesus does in his exhaustion as a human being? He went out to a solitary place. We know what Jesus is doing from other accounts. He's communing with his heavenly father through prayer. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, And then I had you underline because that is why I was sent. Here's something that's really important for us to get from that. Despite Jesus' great power, he stayed focused on his purpose. He always thought to himself, what is the mission that my heavenly father sent me on? And was determined, despite his growing popularity, not to be held back from that. He was not going to be limited to one town or one space. His calling, he knew, was higher and wider than that. And so he tells them, I'm going to go on beyond you. And that's exactly what he does. All of this is saying to us, Jesus' actions alongside of his words have power like none other. I want you to write that down. Jesus' actions have power like none other. And then you can flip the page. Now, if you believe that Jesus has power like none other on the basis of what we've just read, what we've just heard, I want you to notice one verse in particular. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Even the forces of Satan 
Even these demons could easily recognize on the basis of the evidence they were seeing who this was. James references this when he writes his letter later on in the New Testament when he's talking to people who want to have faith but not live according to their faith. And he says to them, you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. What, what Jesus is teaching us and what Jesus' brother James is teaching us is faith is more than something that just rests up here and lives up here. It says, even the demons rationally and intellectually get it. I am the son of God. But they do not rely on me, put their faith in me. And so that head knowledge does them no good. In fact, it does them harm. What does James say? They believe that and shudder. You see, what, what we're being taught here is that when we say Jesus is God and I am not, there is a certain respect that comes along with that, a certain fear of God. To understand that if we are on the side of the unclean and the unholy, if, if we are headed down a path that we are not repentant of the sins that we commit, that we're, we're living inside of that sin, and we've stopped the struggle, and maybe even began to advocate for things that God does not agree with in his word, that we have lost this fear and respect of our Father and of our Savior that even the demons have. They know who Jesus is, and they shudder. There is an appropriate part to reading the Bible and hearing some of what God says in his law and developing a proper respect and fear of God that says, when we do not listen, when we do not respect, when we do not obey God, the most appropriate response for us is to know that God is real and to shudder at our own lack of respect and obedience. When God's law confronts us, there should be a little bit of fear that rises up in our hearts that says, hey, we need to check ourselves. We need to see this path that we're on because it is not pleasing to God. And ultimately, when things are not pleasing to God, do you know where they lead you or me? To our own self-destruction, which is why they're not pleasing to God because he doesn't want to see us destroyed. I want you to write this down. Jesus' words and actions show him to be the son of God, the chosen one, the savior of the world. Now we can talk about Jesus' power and realize that there is... There are times and places for us to shudder at that immense power. But the comforting side of this is when we recognize our sins, when we repent of our sins, 
when we, by the Holy Spirit's power and by his drawing, turn ourselves around. Actually, he turns us around and draws us back to the cross and the empty tomb. We can tell ourselves, we also, through Jesus, have the power of his grace, the power of his forgiveness. And it's just like the power that he uses to heal people physically. Bring him whatever kind of spiritual disease or illness or sin or transgression, he has already healed it. He has already won forgiveness for it. And his power is not too short to forgive you whatever you've done in your life. How ashamed you might be of that sin that you committed yesterday or many years ago. How much you struggle with certain sins to defeat them. To know that when your Savior, Jesus, offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice for your sins, that sacrifice has the power to truly and completely forgive you. To know that when Jesus lived a perfect life, he lived that perfect life, the Holy One of God, so that he could give you his holiness and you would be able to stand before God totally unashamed, completely not guilty, because of the power of God's grace and forgiveness. Now, as I close this out, I want you to notice something. Why is Luke writing this? That's the question I asked myself as I wrote this message. Why did Luke write this? And I think the answer is pretty simple. He knows that we as people sometimes struggle with faith. Struggle with knowing, is this Jesus truly the Son of God? Does he really have that kind of power to forgive me and help me no matter what my needs are? And I want you to notice the approach here. The approach is, tell people what Jesus did and let them judge on the basis of the evidence. And by the way, this is not the only place in the Bible where we see that approach. John the Baptist, even John the Baptist had his doubts about Jesus and whether he was truly the promised Messiah. So in prison, John having his doubts, feeling discouraged, sent his people to Jesus. When the men came to Jesus, these are John the Baptist's men, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now it's It's kind of a little bit surprising that John is having these questions, but he's transparent. And how does Jesus answer? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. Jesus does not go, oh, that really makes me angry that he doesn't believe me. Jesus doesn't stomp his feet and go, yes, I am the son of God. No, Jesus says, look at the evidence. Look at what you're seeing and what you're hearing. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Basically, Jesus is saying, 
if I'm doing all of this, what are the probabilities that I might actually be the guy that in the Old Testament, all the prophecies said the Messiah is going to do this? What's the likelihood? Jesus knows what the answer for John the Baptist is going to be because John knows those prophecies. He knows them well. And he knows those prophecies about all this stuff point to the Messiah. The Apostle Paul takes the same approach. 1 Corinthians 15, people are questioning about the resurrection. Notice what he says. After that, he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. More than 500. What's Paul's answer for those who don't know for sure if Jesus rose from the dead? His answer is not, he did, he did, he did. His answer is, I got 500 witnesses. And if I was an attorney and and I could parade those 500 witnesses, and they're still living, if you don't believe me, if you don't trust what I'm saying, go talk to them. If you today could parade, I was just on the patio this morning talking to a a former officer of the law, and we kind of hit on this topic. And he said to me, in any trial that I was ever involved in, if I had 500 witnesses, that, that was a lock. Paul was saying, you can go to any of these 500 people or all of them, and every one of them will say, after Jesus' crucifixion, I saw him alive again. Now, who does that if it's not the Son of God, our Savior, who has amazing power, power even over death? Here's what I want you to write down. Here's a myth we must confront. Christianity is all faith, no facts required. That's what sometimes people paint it as. Christianity, that's all faith. Those people, they took a leap of faith. They had no basis They had no evidence. They had no facts. Because when it's a matter of faith, no facts are required. I'm telling you, that's a myth. Now, when we talk in our culture about science, you know how it's presented? All facts, no faith required. Just the opposite. And that is also completely untrue. Because facts have to be interpreted. And facts are always interpreted according to beliefs. And so as we look at Christianity and science, something always to remember when you're talking to someone who wants to sort of deride you and put you down because you're not very scientific and tell you, I base what I think on facts, you base what you think on blind faith, that's a myth. Because the reality is both require faith and both require facts. This is the truth. Both require facts and faith. God is God. I am not. That's what King Canute knew. And he demonstrated it very well. That's what The gospel writer Luke knew. 
And he shares these stories with us to say, here's what I want you to go home with today. And if you're flattering yourself and and beginning to think you should expect of yourself what only God can do, stop it. Because God is God and you're not. And if you're feeling discouraged and disappointed with your life and not maybe living up to what you thought you could live up to, remind yourself to find peace in this truth. God is God and I am not. And Jesus, God's son, is walking with me in his love and forgiveness, in his grace, every step of my life. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that you are God. Help us to humbly recognize and realize, Lord, that we are not. And that because we are sinful and because we are weak and because life throws the unexpected at us, we should not flatter ourselves into thinking we can do things that only God can do. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Savior. There's only one whose words and actions have such great power. Lord Jesus, that is you. And we are grateful that through the power of those very powerful words, you have called us with authority to be people of faith in your kingdom. Help us to keep walking with you and help us to experience the peace and joy of being able to say every day, God is God, Jesus is God, and I am not. And I pray this in his name. So before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to CrosswalkPhoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. All right, question for you. Who here knows what a Benford 8200 chainsaw is? And who here knows why Tim the Toolman Taylor recommended the Benford 8200 chainsaw? More power. More power. Now, there are only two things that can prevent you as a Christ follower from having more power in your life. Number one, self-flattery. You tell yourself you can do everything and you don't need God. Number two, you're so discouraged and disappointed with life that you stop asking God for more power. The key to getting God's power in your life starts with just remembering this. You could probably say it with me. God is God, and I am not. Now turn to your neighbor and say that. All right, let's say it together just so we remember. God is God, and I am not. If you want more power in your life, start there. Let me send you out with the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and grant you his peace. Amen. Have a great week in the Lord. We'll be up here praying. If you want a prayer, we'll see you on the patio and we'll see you next week.